I hope I'm on. Am I? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Um, I am so grateful to be a part of a church where we have a pastor that is so committed to the Word of God and to the glory of God in all that he does. And it is a privilege for me to uh, have been asked by him to fill in for him tonight. In fact, he's asked for me to focus on uh, a study of prayer for the next couple of weeks. I am going to teach tonight the world's foremost Bible scholar and exegete, Chad, is going to teach next week, and then I'll be back for two weeks and give our pastor a break on Wednesday night. Tonight, we need to begin with prayer because, as probably most of you know by now, uh, our pastor's not feeling very well. His wife is definitely not feeling very well, and a couple of his children are ill as well, so we'll want to pray for them. So if you join me in prayer, I would appreciate it. And um, Cam, could I ask you to pray for our pastor and his family tonight? Okay. Yeah, you can do it wherever you want. Amen. Amen. Well, it's my intention to walk through um, in kind of a teaching format, more than a preaching format, I think, uh, John, the 17th chapter. We know that as the Lord's Prayer, and we're awful, and we need to be very careful to distinguish it between the disciples' prayer or the believers' prayer, which is the model prayer, uh, the quote, our Father, that we know of, and the Lord's Prayer, because this is, in fact, the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to walk us through that uh, over these uh, next few weeks. But we're going to begin today by looking at the first five verses of John chapter 17. And uh, I would like for us just simply to begin to by reading... Uh, chapter 17, and then I have a couple of comments I'm going to make, and then we'll get into the text. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, 
and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that, I may become per that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Before we begin looking at the text, I want to just share a couple of books with you that you may want to look at or think about. The first one is entitled, A Way to Pray. It's written by Matthew Henry. Now, most of us who have studied the Bible are very familiar with Matthew Henry's one-volume commentary on the Bible. It was his lifelong work until he realized the need for prayer in his time and among God's people. So he left that work aside and he wrote this book. He never did get fully back to writing the commentary. There were 12 other people that finished the commentary, but he did finish this book. And it's an exhaustive uh, pattern of prayer, instruction on prayer, if you would. And it can either be used as a handbook or it can just be used as a text, if you would like. So let me recommend that to you, if you would like. The other book that I would recommend to you is one that's written by Isaac Watts. Now, we know Isaac Watts as the great hymn writer. And uh, this, I think, has just been published by Banner of Truth. And this book is uh, an exceptional guide as well. He deals not only with the pattern of prayer, and we, we are familiar with at least one pattern, the ACTS acronym that helps us pray. But he goes even further than that. And so he, does, he deals with those aspects of prayer, the patterns of prayer. But then he also talks about the spirit of prayer. And so you would be greatly blessed to read uh, that book as well. Another book is one that Brother Braxton recommended to us a couple months ago. It's called Praying the Bible. It's written by Dr. Whitley or Whitney from Southern Seminary, who is uh, focused on church renewal and spiritual formation within the church body of Christ. 
And so he's written this book, and it is an encouragement on how we might read or pray and pray the text of the Bible. Finally, the last book I'm going to recommend to you, if you can get your hands on it, I'll help you any way I can, is, is one written by O. Hallisby. This gentleman is a Norwegian theologian who actually uh, was imprisoned during World War II by the Nazis because of his resistance. Afterwards, he taught at the, the, uh, the seminary in Oslo, very reformed in his focus on, on the text and on the Bible and the Christian faith. But this book will probably bless you more than you can imagine. At least, it certainly was a significant book in my life when it was recommended to me and I was able to read it. So let me just share those books with you. And if you want the titles or if I can do anything to help you get them, then I certainly will. Now, as we turn back to the Word of God, we want to look at John chapter 17, and we're going to focus on the first five verses preeminently tonight. Perhaps some of you who are given to listening to Legionnaire Ministries a podcast, I think it was the podcast on January 17th or 18th that Sinclair Ferguson was answering just some theological questions that were put to him. And I remember one of the statements that he made that could have gone unnoticed in, in that podcast when he said <clears throat> that we, as human beings, are created in the image of God and we are the only part of creation that has the ability to relate both to the earthly and to the heavenly. And certainly it was that way with our forefather, Adam, and of course Eve in the garden. They were able to relate on the horizontal um, level with all of creation, but they also had a very close relationship with uh, God, their creator. Of course, when they disobeyed, when they sinned, they were separated from God, and that ability to relate to the Father was destroyed, if you would. But we find that in the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are restored to that relationship and we now are growing in our ability to once again relate to him and the world as reflected in the great commandment. But as we think about that as the privilege that God has given to us as those who are called by God and called and um, to redemption, through regeneration, by the Holy Spirit of God, and by faith alone in Christ alone, by the Spirit alone. We understand this privilege of prayer, but oftentimes we don't know exactly how to pray. Augustine wrote these words many, many, many years ago, of course. Many do not know what, it, what is expedient for them. Hence, they ask what they ought not to ask for. A man must guard against two things when he is praying. He must take heed not to ask what not, <clears throat> not to ask what he ought not to ask for and not to ask for whom he ought not to ask. So, when we look at this, we understand that we have this tremendous privilege that God has afforded us through the redemption of our, <clears throat> our souls and our redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also understand that that's an act of God, that he and he alone begins to cultivate that faith and through the process of regeneration brings us to a faith in Christ through the conviction of our sin. And finally, we have the gift of life, or the gift of faith that brings us into that relationship with him. And as children, we should, as Martin Luther says, pray in a conversation as one who is dependent upon and who is trusting in God, who is eager to voice both thanks and requests with the loving Father, who in turn is eager to hear from his children. 
But consequently, we don't all the time do that. I'm tempted to read from page 121 in this book uh, that kind of magnifies the fact that we have this tremendous privilege of knowing God and being able to fellowship with the Father in prayer, yet because of our ignorance about prayer, if you would, and our self-centeredness in our prayer, we sacrifice the fullness of the joy and the blessings of relating to God. So when we look to John chapter 17, especially these first five verses, we see the Lord speaking. And the Lord is speaking to the Father, and he is praying for himself. He is not praying for his, his uh, followers, but he is praying for himself in these first five verses. And he prays, and as he prays, he elevates the focus of our prayer. He also demonstrates the basic and the uh, focus for our prayer, uh, and he encourages us to pray out of that relationship with the Heavenly Father in these first uh, five verses. I would like to just read those verses for us, and then we will speak to them. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There is so much theological truth in those five verses that we could probably teach for days on end on those verses. But we want to look at them as we begin to look at them, we want to remember that we are speaking about a prayer that the Lord, with which the Lord is concluding the upper room discourse. He began that discourse back in John 13. And he is preparing his disciples for his departure and for his death. But now he has come to that point where his focus not only has turned towards Jerusalem, but he understands that he is about to accomplish the fullness of God's will in our redemption by going to the cross. We need to distinguish this also between the prayer that he prays here and that which he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. This prayer is not the prayer that is prayed in Gethsemane. This prayer is prayed prior to arriving in Gethsemane. So, as we think about that, we also need to be aware that we find it in the context of the Gospel of John, which is a cosmological gospel, if you would, that begins with, in the beginning. And it also says in verse 14 of chapter 1, that we beheld his glory, speaking of Christ, and it was filled with grace and truth. So, we are seeing in the context of God's eternal plan in this context, God's eternal plan being worked out, and we are given the privilege of joining our Lord as he lifts his eyes towards heaven and he voices this intimate prayer between he and the Father. And yes, in this prayer, he is going to pray a great deal for his followers. But in these first five verses, he is praying for himself. So let's first look at this. When, he, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. If you were to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm not going to ask you to do that, we could read that entire chapter. And Paul is, is actually celebrating everything God has done in Christ Jesus, as he calls us unto himself, 
He adopts us as his children. He becomes our father through adoption. He is the Lord's father by nature, and in that the Lord is one with the father. But we are adopted by grace, so he is our father through his grace. But he also has redeemed us. He has sealed us. He has set us aside. And we read that chapter in Ephesians chapter 1, and we celebrate intensely as we should the, the tremendous uh, privilege that it is to be called a child of God and how absolutely humbling and honoring it is to be able to speak to Almighty God and call him Father. But in verses 6, verses 12, and verses 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, you will read this little word, to the praise of his glory. And what we do is we celebrate the goodness of God that has been bestowed upon us, and we are very diligent to do that. We are very active in doing that, and we are very focused on doing that. But oftentimes, we ignore that little phrase that is repeated three different times in that first chapter, to the praise of his glory. So when Jesus here speaks this word, and he lifts his eyes towards heaven, and he says, Father, what he has done has lifted, he has lifted our focus in our prayer from the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, that self-centeredness that so easily besets us, and he focuses our attention on God's eternal plan. And we celebrate the goodness of, of our salvation, isn't it? I mean, how many of us are not humbled every time we think about the fact that we have a hope that nobody else has? That we are on a journey, and we are journeying to God. And one day we look forward to the uh, privilege and the glory of standing in his presence without sin, without pain, without tear. We understand that, and we celebrate that. We celebrate it in our songs. We celebrate it in our discussions together. We celebrate it in our worship. We celebrate it through the teaching and the preaching of his word. And we should celebrate that because it is this beautiful, magnificent thing that God has done in our life. But we have to move beyond just what God has done for us. And our focus needs to be elevated. If you were to travel to Switzerland... And if you were to go to a place called Lauterbrunnen, you would begin in Interlaken, you would get on a train, and you would head east, and you would get off at the valley of Lauterbrunnen, and you, as you get off the train, you would turn to the left, you would walk down to the end of the little village there, and you could stand and look down the valley of falls. And it is the most picturesque, most beautiful thing in the world where you see this lush green valley with all of these waterfalls just pouring off the cliffs and off the mountain. It is a gorgeous sight to behold. But if you got on a cog train or you get on the tram and you ride that tram or cog train up to the top of the mountains that form that valley, the view is astounding. And that beauty that you saw when you initially arrived in Lauterbrunnen pales by comparison. As you see that valley bordered by these beautiful Alps and all the grandeur and beauty that you could begin to imagine. That's what Jesus is doing when he says, my father, when he lifts our focus, he lifts it from just the glorious and magnificent beauty and, and graciousness of what God has done in our life and our focus on the mundane to lift it to where we can rise above it and we get God's focus because now we're at the pinnacle of what God's eternal plan was and is and is being concluded. Before the foundation of the world, God laid out his plan for redemption through which he was to magnify his glory. And it is that view that we begin to just get a glimpse of 
when we consider the fact that this is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, my father. He spoke these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, father, the hour has come. In other words, the time has arrived. Now he has lived by the hour, hasn't he? There are times when he has gone in his ministry when he would say, knowing that his hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He would even tell his brothers that. But at this point, he says, the hour has arrived. And so he cast what's about to happen right into the middle of God's eternal plan formed before the foundation of the world. And when you and I pray, there are some implications from that truth that we must be mindful of. We are sitting right in the middle of our Creator's eternal plan of redemption. And when we come to worship, we are coming to worship the God who is actively involved in redeeming His creation and glorifying Himself through that redemption of each and every one of our lives and our souls. And that should give us a sense of confidence. It should give us a sense of rest. And it should give us a sense of peace. And yes, it should give us a sense of humility before Almighty God. Because that is who and what we are in that he has called us to himself. And by his grace, we call him Father, even though Jesus was called him Father out of the very nature. For he and the Father are one. So, <clears throat> he elevates our focus simply by saying, the, uh, Father, the hour has come. And then he makes this request. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. Now in verse 4 he goes back to say, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you, have, you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with before, before the world existed. So we see him elevating our focus, uh, our... <clears throat> To, to that of God's eternal plan, and he focuses us on the basic foundational request that must resonate in our heart in order for our prayers to be effectively heard by our Heavenly Father. He said, Father, glorify me. Now, he understood the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. He also understood that he was about to be glorified and, and um, authenticated in all that he had taught, all that he had done, because he was about to go to the cross. He was about to give his, his life and shed his blood in his righteousness so that we might be accepted and we might be accepted through him and in his righteousness and we might be forgiven of, his, uh, of our sin through his shed blood. And that through the power that was manifested in the resurrection, we might know the newness of eternal life. So he knew that that was about to happen. And he's saying, the hour has come now for you to glorify me, Father. And the reason that he prays that is that he might glorify the Father. You see, this is God's eternal plan. And what God has done from before the foundation of the world has been intended to bring and manifest his very nature to those that would not only receive him, those that he will call unto himself, but to all of creation. And let me go so far as to say not only that creation that we see, but the creation that we do not see. He is manifesting his glory in his creation. And so the Lord understood the will of God. 
he understood what God's purpose was, and he prayed for him that the Father would glorify himself, and glorify him that he might glorify the Father. And so let me just clearly identify three aspects of the glory of our Lord. First of all, we want to talk about the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. I can't speak to that. You can't even imagine it. But it is a truth that we will behold one day. He was one with the Father. But he took upon himself the form of a servant. And if you'll remember with me the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, as he is explaining that to walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, we must develop the mind of Christ or the mind, our, we must develop in us the mind that was in Christ when he took upon himself the form of a servant and being found in the form of a servant. And don't ignore these words. He became obedient. And he became obedient even to the point of death, whereby God now has given him the name that is above every name, and it is to that name that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. So when we hear Jesus talk about glorifying, the, the Father glorifying him, he understood that he was in the midst of God, of, of um, fulfilling God's plan, and it was only God that could absolutely glorify him with the glory that he had before the very foundations of the world. And that, my friends, is an indication of how we also should pray. So how did he glorify? Well, he took upon himself the form of a servant, and he became obedient even to the point of death. You see, Jesus honored the Father in everything that he did. Whenever he spoke, he spoke as one with authority. He shared the words that God had given to him. He was about being obedient and glorifying the Father. When he stood up in the boat and he calmed the sea, he was magnifying the power of Almighty God. He was glorifying the Father. When he stood before the demon-possessed man who was possessed by a legion of demons and they quaked before him and begged him not to cast him into the abyss. He was magnifying the sovereign, glorious power of God Almighty. He was glorifying God. So we know that he has his glory with God before the foundation of the world. We know it to be true. We believe it by faith even though our minds cannot begin to wrap themselves around the, mag the magnificence of that glory, that glory was there before the foundation of the world. And then he magnifies the glory of God, and we, we find the culminating, climaxing uh, moment of that glorification of the Father as he goes to the cross. And I wish that somehow God would give me the grace and the ability to so describe all that transpired on that cross in such a way that would just humble us totally and completely. But that's the Spirit of God's job, not mine. But listen. He was rejected, falsely condemned. The son of glory was beaten with reeds. His back was ripped open. The son of glory was made to carry a cross up a hill. And I can't even imagine the horror of that thud as that cross was dropped into a hole to, upon which he, to hold him upright where he would be crucified. But listen to what Jesus said. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there was a soldier standing nearby who said, Truly, truly, this is the Son of God. And he went to a grave. And he arose. He met with his disciples. And he ascended to the Father. He glorified God in his final and climatic moment of obedience to the will of God on that cross. For we hear him say very clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane, Oh, if this cup could pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours will be done. So Jesus prays, and he says... Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Oh, we get a glimpse of that third aspect of our Lord glorifying the Father as we open the book of Revelation and we just begin to read it. And we see who our Lord is. He has ascended to the Father. He is robed in the glory of eternity. And one day, that trumpet is going to sound. And he will descend. And he will come just as he has ascended to redeem his children, totally and completely, and all of creation. You see, he is about glorifying the Father. What are the implications for you and me as we think about prayer? You may remember with me the film that we saw the conclusion to last week. Did you hear the last little monologue that was being spoken there by Sinclair Ferguson? when he talked about the revival coming as a sovereign act of God. We can't leverage God to do anything by doing anything. He's sovereign. He does what he chooses to do. But, you'll remember perhaps the word that Sinclair Ferguson said, and he said, it was born out of prayer, continually. But it seemed like the prayer was not for revival, but for the glory of God. That's what he said. And so the implication for you and me as we come to pray, we and, and especially not only individually, but as our families, and, and especially as the church, we need to be praying that our hearts would desire the glory of God before any and everything else. You perhaps have read and heard about what's going on out at Ashbury Seminary and the revival that is supposedly taking place out there. I pray that it is an authentic revival. But if it is, it is going to be centered on and it is going to be focused on magnifying the glory of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. Then, he talks about this, and I'm not going to dwell long on this, but let me just read you a word before we move from glory to what Stephen Sharnock, Sharnock says. The glory of God must weigh more in our thoughts than on 
our private interest. His glory is to be our end in our common actions, much more in acts of religious worship. If another end be higher in our hearts, in our prayers, though we pray to God, we really worship an idol, ourself. Though God be the object, yet he is not the end. We must seek God for all blessings with the same end for which God gives them. He gives us the highest of his glory. He hath accepted us in his beloved to the praise of the glory of his grace. We must beg for self-subordinately, but for God's glory ultimately. Our Savior begged glory for himself that he might return glory to his Father to beg anything for ourselves principally is the prayer of some lust, ambition, covetousness. To beg anything for God's glory is a prayer of grace, like that of our saviors. The implication of that truth on our prayer life and our worship are inestimable. But we look to verse 2 and we see that that glory resulted in or was manifested through the giving of eternal life by our Lord to those that God had given him in Christ Jesus whom you have sent. Now, I want to stop a moment here on verse 3. And I want to say to you, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When you read those words, those whom you have given me, if you were to read them in the original language, there is this very strange tense that has nothing to do with the time of uh, period of when something happened, but it has to do with the kind of action, what did happen and how it happened. It's called the aorist tense. But it, when it's used in the present tense, when it's aorist, indicative, then it, result, it, it is as if it is something that has been accomplished and is presently effective. So what he is here saying just... Uh, uh, not grammatically, but um, he is saying through the use of this tense, this aorist tense, that God, before the foundation of the world, had given to Christ those that would be saved, and Christ is now giving the eternal life to those who God has given to him. Now, when he says giving eternal life to those that God is giving him, he's using the word when he says giving in a perfect tense, which means that he began to give it and it continues forever. So Jesus, God has accomplished his purposes in completing him giving that eternal life to those uh, that he would give to the Son, and that eternal life is continually received by those that God is going to continue to call into his kingdom. And that's just doing a little bit of language study. But there's more to it than that. Even the use of two words about knowledge, and I don't press this too uh, hard, but there are two words in the New Testament used for knowledge. One is pronounced oida. And it's about an intellectual knowledge. It's that kind of knowledge that we use to understand anything. It's very important for the Christian faith that we have that kind of knowledge. Paul prays that we be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But the word that is used here is also the word that is used in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, where he says that he has given to us everything that pertains to godliness through the knowledge of him. This word describes 
a relational knowledge where a person actually comes to know in a very real and personal way the activity of God in their life in such a way as to know the regeneration of their heart and the creation of a new creation in Christ Jesus. And to know that relationship and to grow in that relationship continually is what we call sanctification. And Jesus is saying to you and me that eternal life is not just an understanding of the doctrines, while, hear me say this very clearly, doctrine is ultimately important. (laughs) It's imperative. And uh, I'm in total agreement with everything our pastor would say about that. But that doctrine brings us to a growing relationship with Christ Jesus, with the Father and with the Son that he has sent to accomplish his purpose. Again, let me just read, to clarify that, from Stephen Sharnock. There is a speculative knowledge, a study, and knowledge of God upon the same account that men study and desire to know other things that are excellent and delightful as both the contemplation of God in creation and the the contemplation of God in redemption. Afford notions very gospel to a delicate understanding. Thus a man speculatively knows God and Christ when he is well skilled in the revelation of God the history of Christ, the analogy between the types, the predictions of Christ in the Old Testament, and the accomplishment of them in the New, in the person of Christ. A knowledge God by creation uh, um, of the wisest sort of heathens had, who have discoursed excellently of the nature of God. They are said to know God, a knowledge of God by revelation the Jews had in the Old Testament who yet rejected the Son of God, a knowledge of Christ, many learned many professing Christianity have. The knowledge of Christ many learned, many men professing Christianity have, who know Christ in the bark of the letter, but not in the sap of the Spirit as the new Jews knew him under the veil of types, but were ignorant of his person when he came among them. There are, he is just simply saying that there has to be that moment when God so moves in our life that we not only are repentive of our sin and placing our faith in Christ, but we recognize that is even a gift of God. It is something that is accomplished through regeneration, and we are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, but there is a union that happens with the Father. There is a restoration to relationship with Almighty God that occurs at that point in which we must grow and in which we must pray. So as we look at this, And as we look towards moving through John chapter 17, as we think about prayer, this is not a prescription for prayer, but it is certainly filled with a demonstration of appropriate prayer. And the questions come to us. How do I pray? Now, we all know the name it, claim it. (laughs) Health, welfare, heresies. We're not talking about that. But is there a sense in which we ourselves focus on what we're wanting God to do? rather than deeply desiring 
the glory of God to be manifested in our lives and in our church. Glorify yourself, Father, in your church that your church may glorify you. And do we pray? Do we pray out of a knowing, personal, real relationship with Almighty God? And as we grow in our understanding, as we study and we embrace the doctrines of the Reformed faith, Is that where it stops? Or do we do it out of a real relationship with Almighty God? And for you and me to contemplate the very privilege that is ours right now in this moment to speak to the creator of this world and call him Father is beyond my comprehension and should be the most humbling experience that we have ever had and should move prayer from the peripheral of our life to the very center of our life as we pray for the glory of God and that we would hunger after it. Let's pray together. Well, actually, I think Dion's going to pray for us. Aren't you, Dion? Would you come pray for us?